You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And it's the 19th of January, the day of return for me to Tuesday home time. And I'm Jan Bartlett. Now actually in the studio, still preparing the program from home studio. But hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll be back in the 3CR studio after almost a year of absence. Hopefully Kevin Healy, with his week that was, will also be back in two or three weeks. But sadly, a friend to all here at 3CR, Michael Smith, won't be. And it's hard to realise that after so many years, we'll be without him. Also, a friend and supporter of 3CR, Rick Simpson, will be sadly missed. Rick sometimes would sit in the kitchen at CR with a cup of tea and listen to Tuesday Home Time. But today, a feature will be to celebrate the coming into force this Friday of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I'll be speaking with activists here and in the US. The legacy of four years of Trump, don't get too excited about Biden, accelerating terror in the Philippines. But first, the declassification of the 2018 United States Strategy Framework for the Indo-Pacific. That's the program until 6 this evening. In its dying days, the Trump administration pushed through decisions in a number of areas, including naming the Houthis of Yemen as a terrorist organisation, reinstating a number of brutal sanctions against Cuba, supporting Morocco and denying the right of the vote of self-determination for the Western Saharan people, But what we're talking about today is the declassification of a 2018 US strategy framework for the Indo-Pacific, which has served as the overarching strategic guidance for the Trump administration's national security strategy. And to help us understand what it has meant, and possibly for the future, I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and asked him first why it has been declassified so early. At the end of its term of office, in a period of chaos and insurrection, Trump administration is laying a series of landmines for the incoming Biden administration in the United States. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has made a number of diplomatic moves in recent times that are going to cause political problems for for Biden. For example, by declaring uh, Cuba as involved in state-sponsored terrorism, Um, reversing uh, a policy uh, that Obama uh, removed some time ago, recognising Morocco's control over Western Sahara, which is a denial of the right to self-determination. Western Sahara is on the the list before the UN Special Committee on Decolonisation, getting Morocco, Bahrain and a number of other uh, Arab regimes, uh, undemocratic uh, uh, Gulf monarchies to recognise Israel and so on. So there's been a series of moves in the dying days of the Trump administration to set up uh, political problems for the Democratic uh, administration under Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And so the release of this um, previously secret National Security Council document, which was uh, only prepared in 2018 and shouldn't normally be released until 30 years, is really trying to frame the discussion around China because uh, although the document describes itself as an Indo-Pacific strategy, really it's looking at how the United States 
can work with allies and partners to contain China's rise in the Asia-Pacific region. Who are the people who put something like this together? Is it the administration itself or is it the military? It's a bit of everyone. It's an interagency document. So um, in 2017, uh, Donald Trump and his, uh, his staff uh, outlined a national security statement and so different departments, you know, the Defence Department, the intelligence agencies, uh, uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo and others, sort of said, what's the big picture? And that national policy of where the United States wants to go in coming years is then broken down into objectives and actions. And so this uh, document that, that, that focuses on the Indo-Pacific, it's called the United States Strategic Framework for the Indo-Pacific, is really looking at implementing this broader national security strategy within the Indo-Pacific region. What used to be called Asia-Pacific is now dubbed Indo-Pacific by Australia and the United States because really people want to draw India into this whole process. It was coordinated by the National Security Council, which is a a structure within the White House. A guy called Matt Pottinger was one of the key people involved in this in the early days. So it sets out the broad objectives and broad brush some actions that can be taken by different parts of the United States administration, military, civilian, intelligence, uh, development and so on, to basically um, advance U.S. interests in the Pacific. And although it's quite extensively focused on East Asia and on Southeast Asia, it does also um, focus on the Pacific Islands and Australia, of obvious importance to us, given the question about how much Australia's foreign policy is tied in to broader US objectives. Well, we're looking at early 2021. How many of those challenges or promises or whatever have been actioned? Well, quite a lot of them. One of the key priorities set out in the document is to build stronger ties to India. And uh, remembering this document was put forward in 2018, um, over the last couple of years, there's been a number of steps taken to try and engage India more in defence and uh, security uh, alliances and partnerships with um, countries that are lined up against China. And so, as one example, last year, for the first time in 13 years, Australia participated in what's called Exercise Malabar, Malabar is a major naval exercise organised by India and Japan, the United States and, as as I say, Australia for the first time in more than a decade joined in this naval exercise. So that's one symbol of the way that Australia is looking towards um, engaging with India and that's very much a key focus of this US strategy document, getting India involved in the Chinese uh, containment policies. They talk about containment, that's not the official stated doctrine, but that's essentially what people are concerned about, the rising power of China across this broad Asia-Pacific region. You have to look at the newspapers last year where there were clashes um, between uh, troops, not armed clashes, but physical clashes between Indian and Chinese troops on their long-disputed border in the high uh, high mountains um, um, dividing China and India. So there's some some signs that that India being drawn in and Australia being party to that. Um, There's a lot of talk in the document about the United States working with key partners and allies, India, Japan, 
South Korea and Australia. And Australia has long been involved in, in this. For example, for many years we've been hosting Marines, US Marines, uh, rotating through uh, the Northern Territory. The Australian government just announced that they're no longer going to uh, keep upgrading the helicopters, ARH helicopters that we bought for the Australian Army from uh, the Europeans and are going back to buy Apache helicopters, which are an American-made uh, military helicopter. So the ADF is going back to the American technology rather than the stuff produced by Eurocopter, which is a consortium of, of European powers. So there are a lot of signs that that integration and what they call interoperability, the capacity to work together, to operate together in the region, is very much focused within Australia. There's even talk that the United States might create a new Pacific fleet, uh, revive the, the, the first Pacific fleet, and that needs to be based somewhere, whether in Singapore or in West Australia, and that's going to be something that uh, is going to come up in the next few years, I suspect, under the Biden administration, about whether the US Navy will increase its access to ports uh, wanting to deploy, particularly in the, into the Indian Ocean, and uh, Australia is the obvious place to do that with uh, naval facilities at Stirling in Western Australia. Well, with India being a big focus, what's in it for them? Well, India's um, interested in uh, moving into markets in, uh, in other parts of uh, Asia, that uh, China is already very competitive. Um, there's been a love-hate relationship between India and China over many years. Uh, India's always had a fairly independent foreign policy, is not, for example, a formal ally of the United States, but the, India is worried about the growing power of China, and so there's also, uh, you know, the rise of uh, Hindu nationalism under the Modi administration uh, in uh, India, and so, you know, India is looking to uh, engage with other markets and other players. The United States is obviously a key one, and uh, as I say, there's a lot of border tensions between India and China, attempts for them to come together. So there's a whole lot of moving pieces in this world. And one of the, the interesting questions is that the, the United States is looking in this document, as I say, through major players like India, Japan, Korea, but also looking at Australia and the Pacific. And the document clearly sets out the objective, uh, and it says, and I quote, we want to ensure that the Pacific Islands, the U.S. territories, the freely associated states, the Melanesian and Polynesian states remain aligned with the United States. The strategy action proposal is in the Pacific Islands is, and I quote, to solidify our diplomatic, military, intelligence, economic, development assistance and informational advantages across the Pacific Islands. Then there's a bit blacked out in the document that's been released, which I think probably relates to intelligence matters that they don't want to talk about publicly. And so, you know, here you have, from a couple of years ago, the United States saying that they want to make sure that the Pacific Islands remained aligned with the United States, and they want to solidify diplomatic, military intelligence, economic aid, and informational advantages across the Pacific Islands. So, for example, informational advantages, um, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, new technology, submarine cables and so on, for telecommunication 5G, the upgrading of uh, Wi-Fi and telecommunication systems. Um, and so when Huawei, the Chinese corporation, offered to uh, build submarine cables between Australia, PNG and Solomon Islands, Australia stepped in to stop Huawei operating. And indeed, Huawei's been banned from uh, uh, selling technology to the government. Uh, we're going to buy European technology rather than Chinese 
to uh, advance into from 3G and 4G telecommunications into 5G, which is the future of telecommunications. So in that informational sphere of cybersecurity and telecommunications and so on, we're going to buy Western, not Chinese. Uh, but there's pressure, obviously, for the Pacific Island suit. And this is quite tricky because in many cases, Pacific countries, PNG, Fiji, uh, Vanuatu and others, have a policy, foreign policy, that they describe in, in shorthand as friends to all, enemies to none. And so while a country like Fiji wants to maintain uh, a friendship with Australia and with the United States, it also wants to maintain a friendship with China. One of the reasons for that is that China is now the biggest trading partner of many Pacific Island countries, just as it is with Australia. Pacific Island countries have looked to China um, as a source of infrastructure, spending, of aid, um, technology transfer, scholarships for education. You know, China's a big player on the global stage, and Pacific Island neighbours um, have been looking to China for partnerships, just as many other countries have. Um, now, the United States and Australia want Pacific neighbours to give up their China connection, and that's causing a lot of ructions within the Pacific Islands Forum, because... Some countries, particularly Fiji and PNG, don't want to do that. Have they, in a sense, in the past, the US and Australia, taken the Pacific for granted? Very much so. More so the United States. I mean, Australia has always been a very active player in the Pacific through the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, you know, Australia and New Zealand are the two largest members of the Forum, which is an 18-member organisation that links together the region, and we're full members um, countries like the United States, China, France, Britain, and so on are what they're called forum dialogue partners. So they're not full members, but they have an annual or regular consultations with the, the forum members. But Australia and New Zealand for a long, long time have been full members of the forum, and that gives us a, a, a distinct role. And the United States has really talked about wanting to engage with the Pacific, but has really failed to do so for many, many years. There are a few exceptions in the northern Pacific, uh, in the Micronesian Islands. The U.S. territory of Guam is a huge U.S. asset. It's about a third of the land area of Guam, which is a U.S. territory, like it's still a U.S. colony. About a third of the land area is military bases. Guam has a huge naval base at Apra Harbor that the U.S. Navy uses. And uh, so Guam has a, a big airport as well, Anderson Air Force Base, uh, where B-52 bombers can land and deploy it's very close to Asia, obviously, so it's a huge strategic asset for the United States. Similarly, in Hawaii, there are many uh, military bases uh, at Pearl Harbor, at Fort Schaefer, the Marine Base, and so on. They also have links with countries like the Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, and Palau. And uh, one of the things that the American administration under Trump began was discussions with Palau about building a military base in Palau that can be used for that purpose. There's talk about upgrading Australia in the United States, upgrading the uh, Lombrum naval base at uh, Manus uh, in Papua New Guinea that's supposed to be used for maritime surveillance, fisheries and so on. But um, the U.S. is putting a lot of money into uh, this upgrading of the PNG naval base on Manus, uh, which was used by the U.S. fleets during the Second World War. That's a very deep water harbour that would be a, a useful strategic asset in Papua New Guinea. But see, the US is, is only just beginning to re-crank its engagement in very practical ways, you know, because the Trump administration, for example, had uh, 
really annoyed the Pacific by withdrawing from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, cutting funding to the Green Climate Fund, which is a global mechanism to provide money to developing countries for uh, climate change. Indeed, Scott Morrison followed the Trump administration, giving them political cover uh, for their withdrawal from the Green Climate Fund. Australia used to be co-chair of the fund, and one of our uh, leading diplomats, Howard Bamsey, used to be the head of the Secretariat. But uh, Australia decided that it wouldn't give money through this multilateral body, partly because it, uh, the board of the Green Climate Fund is half developed countries and half developing countries. So it wasn't controlled in the way that um, you know Australia now gives its climate finance directly, bilaterally, to uh, island countries, rather than having countries on the board having a say about how and where it's spent. But the US has, has sort of cranked up, and I think... The, the, the statement in this, this document that there needs to be diplomatic, military, development assistance, information advantages across the Pacific Islands is starting to play out. In 2019, an American congressman, a guy called Ed Case, who's a Democrat politician in Hawaii, elected member of the U.S. House of Representatives, he worked with some other congressmen and women to establish uh, the first Congressional Pacific Islands Caucus. So these are members of the US Congress who are focused and interested in the Pacific Islands. Um, and it's that was started with four politicians, has now grown to four or five times that number. In July last year, July 2020, they introduced a bill into the House of Representatives called the Blue Pacific Act. And the blue is an acronym, Boosting Long-Term US Engagement in the Pacific. So the Boosting Long-Term U.S. Engagement in the Pacific Act proposed spending a billion dollars and developing a comprehensive long-term U.S. strategy in the Pacific Islands. They want to increase the number of U.S. diplomats and embassies based in the islands. A big focus on increasing U.S. security and law enforcement cooperation, so defense training and things like that. Diversifying trade, so doing more trade with the islands. A lot of talk about strengthening people-to-people relationships, so cultural tours, scholarships, all those sorts of things. Uh, so that bill was put forward in, in July last year, but then it just got bogged down. It's buried in the congressional committees, and as anyone will have been reading the newspapers, will know that the US Congress has been a bit busy fighting off um, white supremacists and, and the chaos and insurrection that have marked the end of the, the dying days of the Trump administration. Um, so that bill still lingers, but one would expect the Biden administration to... Um, Know, push ahead with that legislation pretty quickly. It's been announced that Kurt Campbell, a leading figure from the Obama administration, as, as they're the guy who designed the uh, Obama administration's pivot to Asia, as it was called at that time, he's now been appointed by the Biden administration as their Indo-Pacific coordinator. So there's a, a, a fellow um, who's going to you know, be leading the, the charge into Asia at a time that there's uh, a growing concern in the United States about Chinese influence. There's a lot happening. And, you know, Australia's really integrally involved in, in all of this sort of stuff. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett, and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan about the early declassification of the 2018 United States Strategic Framework for the Indo-Pacific. Does the presence of France in the Pacific rate a mention? It doesn't, and that's something, though, that Australia has been very focused on. As people may know, Australia decided when it was going to uh, 
get a new generation of submarines to replace the Colin-class submarines that we've, uh, the Australian Defence Force has had for many years. They went French. And so um, uh, a company called Naval Group um, and Thales, another French corporation, are involved in constructing a new generation of submarines. And there's been a, a growing strategic partnership between France and Australia over more than a decade. You know, going back to the Prime Ministership under Kevin Rudd, um, when Richard Miles was uh, Secretary for the uh, Pacific in the, the Rudd government and later, he was really strongly involved in, in boosting links. There's been a, a growing cooperation between the Australian Defence Force and the uh, French forces deployed in New Caledonia, which is known as FANC, the Force Armée de la Nouvelle-Calédonie. Um, so that burgeoning relationship between Canberra and Paris that operate you know, on, on a big picture in terms of naval deployments with submarines and so on in, in the Indian Oceans is also very much focused in the southwest Pacific. Um, so, for example, last January, in January 2020, the Chief of Defence Force from Australia and his counterpart from New Zealand both made a formal visit to Noumea to meet with the French Armed Forces in Noumea, new capital of New Caledonia which is just off the coast of Queensland, one of Australia's closest neighbours. And last year as well, Australia appointed a liaison officer between the Australian Defence Force and French Armed Forces in New Caledonia. Uh, this is uh, an Australian officer, ADF officer, who will be based at the Australian Consulate General in Noumea, but will also work in the French Armed Forces headquarters part of the time, and that's to coordinate uh, joint operations between Australia and France. And indeed, last year I interviewed Australia's Consul General in Namia on the 80th anniversary of Australia's diplomatic presence in New Caledonia. And she said, and I quote, there's an alignment between Australia's step-up engagement with the Pacific and France's Indo-Pacific Axis strategy. Both of us see ourselves committed to security in the region and meeting the security needs of the region. In that sense, France is a very important partner for Australia. So long forgotten are the days when there was, you know, tense relations between Australia and France, when, you know, the blowing up of the Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbour, where France was detonating 193 nuclear weapons at Mururoa and Frankertorf Atolls, when the French military were repressing people in uh, the mid-1980s in New Caledonia. Um, Australia, you know, joined with its Pacific neighbours to condemn French colonialism. Those times are long gone. You won't hear the Foreign Minister of Australia ever talk about French colonialism, even though New Caledonia is moving, as we've discussed on this program many times, moving towards yet another vote on independence, edging closer and closer to a final referendum on self-determination, just as Bougainville has uh, had a successful referendum. And so, you know, you're seeing this close collaboration, and France is seen as another piece of the jigsaw in building a capacity to contain China and Chinese influence in the region, even though uh, it's there. So it's not a priority. It's interesting that it's not a priority in the uh, US uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, but it's certainly a priority for Canberra, maintaining good relations with France. And, you know, that's sort of problematic in a number of ways. Firstly, because um, New Caledonia particularly is moving towards a decision on its political status, and the French are very worried about the the strength of the independence movement there. But secondly, also, the government of New Caledonia and the government of French Polynesia are looking towards China as an economic partner. I've written a chapter about this very question in a new book coming out called The China Alternative, 
which is a, a book published by a new press, should be out in the next month or so, um, looking at China in the Pacific, but written largely by Pacific Islanders as well as people from Australia and New Zealand, looking at it from a local perspective. And one of the things is that uh, New Caledonia, China is New Caledonia's largest trading partner. It buys nickel from New Caledonia, and that indeed is expanding after Chloe Palmer shut down the nickel smelter in Townsville. New Caledonia had a major major market for its ore in Queensland, and thank you, Clive Farmer. Since then, uh, the, the trade with China has expanded, and then New Caledonia's largest trading partner is China. So at the same time, you have the security crats in Canberra and Paris talking about um, you know building Australian-New Caledonia ties to keep the Chinese out. China is the largest trading partner with both Australia and with New Caledonia. Same with French Polynesia. And Hong Kong is, is a major trading partner with French Polynesia, where I think number 11 ranked or lower in, in trade with French Polynesia. So the Pacific Islands say, well, you want us to be enemies with China, but hang on, they're our biggest economic partner. And that's a, a significant issue. And what's the relationship between China and France? Well, it's complex. France is in a similar position to Australia, where um, for a long time there's been significant Chinese investment in French business. Um, you know, uh, so, for example, many vineyards in France, many old, famous wine companies have been bought up by Chinese interests. There was a lot of investment by China uh, in France, but in recent years there's been an ambivalence about that, as we've seen in Australia. And France more and more, and the European Union, is being drawn into this notion that the rising Chinese uh, power is a, a significant threat to long-term security. There's a, a wariness, though, um, in the European Union about being dragged too far down the path of trying to contain China because people think it's not going to work and that the Americans, particularly under Trump, people were, you know, just such uh, useless partners. And I think we're at an interesting point in this. I think the Europeans want to woo China back onto a path of cooperation rather than confrontation uh, in a way that Australia is moving more and more into confrontation mode with China, uh, very much lining up with the Trump vision. Now that Biden's in, we're at an interesting turning point. Will the Biden administration uh, move towards more engagement, more cooperation with China, or will it continue on with the uh, policy of containment and confrontation? Um, I think it's going to be interesting. And uh, in um, the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan welcomes the appointment of Kurt Campbell as the new Indo-Pacific coordinator. Kurt Campbell was dubbed Dr. Containment in the Chinese media a few years ago. Sheridan, no friend of the left, talks about uh, Dr. Contentment. He's very contented that Kurt Campbell will be there because Campbell will want to strengthen the ANZUS alliance, an alliance that's been uh, thrown up in the air by the Trump administration because of its uh, chaotic uh, foreign policy. So I think the sense is from the hardheads in the security establishment and, and the right-wing think tanks like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and others that it will be good to have the Biden administration back in, in, in place because um, they'll uh, re-establish the alliance network with Australia, with New Zealand and so on, and with the Japanese, the Koreans and hopefully the Indians uh, as a way of strengthening US role in the region. That's sort of wishful thinking though because there are plenty of trends going against that. As one example, many countries looking at the chaotic situation around North Korean nuclear weapons development, around Donald Trump, trying to sabotage the Iran uh, cooperation agreement on nuclear issues. Donald Trump's fingers on the trigger just this week. It's the uh, 
the third anniversary of a fuck-up in Hawaii where um, a missile, uh, the National Security and uh, Civil Emergency Services announced that a missile was on the way to hit Hawaii, and for half an hour people completely freaked out that a Korean nuclear missile was heading in their direction. It was all a, a test run that they forgot to say was a test. Um, so people have been very anxious about the growing nuclear threat under the Trump administration. On the 22nd of January, after 50 ratifications, the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons comes into force. This is what's been dubbed the Nuclear Ban Treaty. It's not about nuclear, nuclear arms control. It's about nuclear disarmament. It's about uh, a step-by-step process of moving towards abolishing nuclear weapons. And many of our neighbours in Asia and the Pacific signed on to this treaty. Ten countries in the Pacific, New Zealand and nine Pacific Island countries, are signatories and have ratified the treaty. So 20% of the 50 countries that have ratified the treaty are our Pacific partners. And there are also um, Asian countries, Thailand, Malaysia and others, who've signed on to this treaty, who say the, the danger of nuclear weapons proliferation is so great that we need to get rid of them. So the sort of Biden administration, which is still locked into policies of extended nuclear deterrence, is going to run into this new trend. And as I say, that treaty, um, rendering nuclear weapons illegal in international law, comes into force on the 22nd of January. It's certainly not going to get rid of nuclear weapons overnight. Indeed, there's enormous pushback from nuclear weapons powers, and indeed, countries like Australia and New Zealand, and the benefit from the extended nuclear umbrella that the United States has with its nuclear arsenal. Bases like Pine Gap and others are involved in nuclear targeting for American first strike policies. So we're very much integrated into that American nuclear thing. Our neighbour New Zealand, however, has stepped out of that despite being a member of the ANZUS Alliance. That's a, a growing issue of tension within the Pacific between Australia's love of American nuclear weapons and a growing sense in the Pacific that it's time to move, move on from the nuclear era. The other big question, of course, is... You know, you've got a situation where uh, there are are really significant differences between Australia and its Pacific neighbours on climate policy, as we've talked about in part of the region. And, you know, and this is not just radicals in the Pacific that are concerned about this. A couple of years ago, in 2019, the commander of the Fiji military forces, Rear Admiral Viliami Naupoto, went to a a thing called the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is a, a sort of public forum for military and security people gave a really interesting speech and this is as i say a guy in the fiji military no no friend of the left um and he said i believe that there are three major powers in competition in our region there is the united states it's always been there forever there is china which has been a loyal friend to many of us the third competitor is climate change and of the three climate change is winning So here you've got the top military guy in Fiji saying the US is a good friend, but China's a good friend, a loyal friend to many of us in the Pacific, he says. But the third competitor in the region is climate change, and climate change is winning. So that summarizes the the top military guy in Fiji. His sense of security is that you don't just look at the US-China competition. You look at the fact that Australia had bushfires ravaging the East Coast this time last year, while our Prime Minister was holidaying in Hawaii and saying, I don't hold a hose, mate. Two major cyclones, Category 5 cyclones last year in the Pacific, Cyclone Harold in April, 
and then another Category Cyclone, Category 5 Cyclone in December, Cyclone Yasa, that caused death and destruction in Fiji and other Pacific countries. So people in the Pacific want urgent action on climate change, and the Biden administration is going to put, I think, uh, some initial steps to say America's back on track, <laughs> the very basics of this, simply by re-entering the Paris Agreement on climate change with Donald Trump withdrew from. But it's going to need more than that. It's going to need much more urgent action. We're heading towards a pathway of three or four degrees destruction for not only Pacific countries, but for Australia, as the Bush advisors have told us. That's going to be an important issue for the Indo-Pacific. China's regime has pledged uh, net zero by 2060, and so moving towards carbon neutrality in coming decades, a long way to go for China, which is the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the the world. The United States close second, though. Um, uh, You know, will the Biden administration try and forge some cooperation with China around climate policy, even as they try and move in other security areas? It's going to be a major focus. The Trump administration didn't talk much about climate change in this Indo-Pacific strategy, yet I think that's going to be one of the real turning points in coming months. As all of our listeners know, Australia's way, way behind on climate policy, um, even compared to nongs like Boris Johnson and others. Boris Johnson makes Scott Morrison look like some sort of uh, Neanderthal. There's a long way to go on climate policy within Australia, um, that's going to be a real real battling point with our neighbourhood. Successive leaders in the Pacific say it's the key security issue in the region. And if Australia is going to step up, as they keep saying, in the region, there has to be a fundamental change in climate policy. And there's little, if any, sign of that happening under the current uh, leadership in Canberra. Thanks, Nick, and welcome to 2021. Yeah, well, we've survived 2020. Um, <laughs> I did, however, see a, a meme on uh, on the web the other day saying, if um, you know the first seven days of uh, 2021 or anything like the rest of the year, can I have my money back? <laughs> we've had an attempted coup in Washington. We've had uh, our deputy prime minister saying that uh, the Black Lives Matters people are all uh, just like the the white supremacists who tried to derail the elections in the United States. Um, there's a long way to go in Canberra. There's some challenges before us. But, yeah, welcome to 2021 and look forward to speaking to you again throughout the year. Thanks, Nick. I've been speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Hi, I'm Michelle Briere, Mani Dubonais, Ojibwe from Canada. And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And we love and support Community Radio. Why? Because it speaks the truth. This Friday, the 22nd of January, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, making nuclear weapons illegal under international law, enters into force, joining landmines, cluster mines, chemical and biological weapons. It's been a long journey since 2006, when the International Positions for the Prevention of Nuclear War adopted ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, as top priority at its World Congress in Finland, at which the Australian affiliate, Medical Association for the Prevention of War, committed to fundraising and providing coordination for a campaign launch in 2007. 
Events to commemorate the day will be held worldwide, particularly here in Australia, where the ICANN campaign was officially launched. Today we hear from a number of activists, both here in the US, about their journeys to this long-awaited treaty and what they believe it will mean in the climate of international uncertainty. First to Dr Sue Wareham, the President of MAPW. Now I asked Sue what role she has fulfilled over the years working to bring this ban into being and how far back did that go? Well, yes, it has been for over 10 years, although the notion of prohibiting nuclear weapons as is being as is being now, um, that's been around for quite a while, but the nuts and bolts of the work to get it done has been over a decade and a bit. The organisation, the civil society organisation that's probably done the most to promote the treaty is ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And ICANN was launched here in Australia, in Melbourne, in 2007 by health professionals by the Medical Association for Prevention of War, MAPW. So it's a pretty proud moment for health professionals in Australia and it's a proud moment for Australians generally to have this treaty, the work for which started here, to have it come to fruition after this time. And of course, this is not the end of the story. This is just a step along the way, of course, but we'll probably come to that in the discussion, what happens, what needs to happen next. Yes, it's been a, a good story for health professionals, been a good story for Australia, not that the Australian government recognises that, and it's been a good story and continues to be a good story for civil society right around the world and for the governments that have strongly supported this. They've, of course, played a critical role because we need governments before we can negotiate treaties. And, of course, it's not just groups all over the world. As you said, then it's governments that have supported this over the years as well. Yes, it is. And from the very start, there have been some really important key players among the governments that have helped to kick off this process and make sure that it continues through to the conclusion of the treaty and beyond. I I won't be able to name all of them, but uh, Austria has played a really important role. Um, Mexico has played an important role. Norway initially played a a really important role in this. New Zealand has been a strong supporter of the abolition of nuclear weapons for a long time. As we know, here in Australia, they didn't uh, want any association with nuclear weapons policies back in the 1980s. So they've been strong on this for a long time. South Africa has been a good player. Um, A number of Pacific Island countries have, in fact, most Pacific Island countries have been strongly supportive of this process. And in Southeast Asia, some countries there, Vietnam, uh, Laos, Philippines, Malaysia. Malaysia has been a good, strong supporter. So there are a lot of countries uh, that have really, uh, whose governments have really helped to make this happen. And I should mention also Costa Rica. The Costa Rican ambassador, Ambassador Elaine White, was the one who actually chaired the negotiations back in 2017 at the United Nations to uh, get this treaty negotiated and into existence. And she played a superb role, and Costa Rica um, has been very important to this process also. So there's a a lot of goodwill among governments. It's not just civil society. And to see governments 
and civil society working together for the common good for really the survival of our planet and for the welfare of all of us. Um, that's a really, really good news story and it's worth celebrating. And that's what we'll be doing on 22nd when the treaty comes into, the, into force on Friday, the days after that. And of course the country that really should be behind this is Japan, but it's not because of it's in the ambit of the United States. But I'd imagine many peace groups in, in Japan itself have been working tirelessly for this. Oh, yes. Um, as you mentioned, the Japanese government has not come on board with this, as it should, given Japan's history with as being the only nation that actually suffered the impacts of nuclear explosion in wartime, setting aside the issue of testing, which has been carried out at a number of places. But yes, the Japanese government definitely should be on board with this, but it's not the reason that you state that they're strongly allied with the United States. And the United States sees pressure on all of its allies not to take any part in this process. But the Japanese people, uh, yes, have been very strongly behind this treaty and urging their government to support it. There have been huge petitions, not just from the Hibakusha, the atomic test survivors in Japan. They, of course, are strongly in favour of the treaty, but Japanese civil society generally is strongly in favour of the treaty, as is civil society in all places around the world where opinion polls have been conducted. We always we find universally that there's strong support for the treaty. We know that we've got people around the world strongly behind this and wanting it to succeed and recognising that it needs to succeed for the future of all of us. There's many aspects to the treaty, Sue. What do you see as the nine ones? Yes, many aspects, but the, I guess the, the key part is that the treaty explicitly prohibits all aspects associated with nuclear weapons, so it prohibits the development, testing, production, including the use of them, but also the threat of use, um, and the possession, the transfer, encouragement in relation to nuclear weapons. So everything that you could imagine that plays into this horrific problem that we have now of 13,000 nuclear weapons around the world, all aspects are prohibited. So it's going to open up a lot of potential for what happens after Friday because Friday treaty comes into effect, but then um, we need to make sure that it's strengthened, that more countries sign on that it is used as um, as it is intended as a tool, political tool really, to exert pressure on the countries with the weapons to get rid of the weapons. So that's what we'll be doing here here in Australia, making the point as we I can and MSW and and others have been making the point for years that the treaty now puts nuclear weapons in the same illegal category as other weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, biological weapons, they've all been prohibited by their respective treaties for literally decades. Same as cluster munitions and landmines, they also are prohibited by treaties. And what has happened in the cases of all of those weapons is that the prohibition treaties bring a real stigma to the weapon. They become a political liability. So in the case of all of those weapon systems, 
they no longer present the same overwhelming threat to the world that they did before the Prohibition Treaty came into existence. What has been observed also is that no working system has really been brought under control or eliminated without a Prohibition Treaty. So the process of Prohibition and then elimination is the the way that it's happened in the past and the way with other weapon systems and that's what's happening now with nuclear weapons. First we have the Prohibition Treaty which we have now coming into effect on Friday and then after that comes the pressure for elimination of the weapons. What does it say about companies that work to manufacture weapons? Uh, well it doesn't state specifically what should happen in relation to corporate entities or, or anything like that. But the wording about encouragement and inducement to take part in associated activities, that's not the exact wording, but that's the gist of it, the, the important part, and that will be used by ICANN and by MAPW in our divestment work. And the divestment work has already started, MAPW and ICANN, have commenced a program, a project called Quit Nukes, which listeners might like to have a look at. There's a website, Quit Nukes. And Quit Nukes here in Australia, the global thing, but here in Australia, the project is, the campaign is aiming to get superannuation funds to divest from companies that make nuclear weapons or associated with nuclear weapons production. That campaign is going well. And we know from discussions with superannuation companies that one of the criteria that they often use in relation to whether to invest or not in a particular company is the issue of legality. That's a threshold that's important for obvious reasons. So now that nuclear weapons are deemed illegal under international law, that's going to make the divestment work a lot easier too. There's a lot of promise. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be horrified to know that they're Superannual fund is involved in an industry like this? I think so. And we've done uh, an opinion poll to find out that very question. Yes, Australians did want to know what their investments were supporting uh, and didn't want their investments supporting nuclear weapons. It's an important issue for the superannuation fund. We know that divestment. Um, is being used successfully in relation to fossil fuel industry as, as one aspect of climate action, and that's a, a really important initiative for climate campaigns to be undertaken. And it's an important initiative in uh, a number of areas of our community life, I guess, that issue of social licence, to what do companies actually have permission from the communities to do? And certainly when it comes to the worst of all weapons of mass destruction, it's quite clear that they don't don't have a licence to help with the production of these most uh, terrible and uh, most destructive of all weapons. You're in Canberra, Sue. What's planned for the day? Oh, well, there are events planned around the country. Um, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, there'll be events in Perth, Adelaide, and of course lots lots of places around the, glo- around the globe. In Canberra, we're having a celebration at the Peace Bell beside the lake, the Rotary Peace Bell, which is a lovely location. It's a celebration. Uh, we're inviting uh, anyone in the community to come. 
and we're also we've invited uh, all of the the ambassadors of all of the countries that have signed and or ratified the treaty. That is, um, so the countries that are supporting the treaty, and quite a number of them are coming. The celebration will be addressed by the Costa Rican ambassador, and Costa Rica, um, of course, is, uh, has a pretty proud history in relation to rejecting warfare generally, but particularly in relation to nuclear weapons. Very strong history there. That's at 11 a.m. in Nara Peace Park beside the lake on Saturday, so the day after entry into force. Most of the other events around the world will be on the Friday the 22nd, the day of entry into force. So the events are all listed on the ICANN website, so listeners can go there and see uh, see what they would, how they would like to join in and support, and mostly to celebrate. Really, really a good news story. Delightful to be able to share it with, with everybody. To realise that we we can do things uh, when we work together, and particularly working with supportive governments. So, any joy from Australian politicians? Um, there are a lot of Australian politicians who are supportive of the nuclear weapons ban treaty. ICANN has had for some time a parliamentary pledge, um, which is asking Australian, well, Australian and others around the world, um, politicians to support the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty and to do whatever they can to ensure that their country, in our case Australia, signs and ratifies the treaty. It's been strongly supported by Labor politicians and Labor um, has policy to sign and ratify the treaty when next in government. So that's really exciting and we need to hold Labor to that and make sure that that policy and that commitment remains strong. Uh, on the, uh, the Greens, um, strongly supportive of this and independents, uh, strongly, uh, strongly supportive, uh, Zali Stegall, Helen Haynes, Andrew Rookie. On the coalition side, uh, not much support, it's extremely disappointing that this issue is not looked at on, or doesn't seem to be looked at on its merits, but just looked at along party lines um, by the co coalition um, members. So we need to change that. We need to get the Australian government realising that this is in our own interest to sign and ratify this treaty. And we need to recognise that Australian interests are pretty much the same as global interests. We don't have interests that are separate from the rest of the to the planet um, in this day and age when there are so many pressing global problems. So we hear from our Prime Minister frequently that the Australian government can make decisions in our own interest, but that's not happening with this nuclear weapons ban treaty. So we need to change that. One of the initiatives that MNPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, has undertaken and will in fact be launching this on Friday, we have a letter to the Health Minister Greg Hunt um, and also a copy to the shadow uh, Chris Bowen and the letter is urging the Health Minister to take this on as a health issue which it is the issue of nuclear weapons is by any definition an, an issue of health and we're asking the Minister Claire that on med medical and health grounds Nuclear weapons must never be used again under any circumstances and we're asking him to declare that there's a 
a responsibility on health grounds to eliminate these worst of all weapons. We'll be delivering that to the health minister and we are inviting all health professionals around the country, so any listener who's a health professional or if you know a health professional, uh, have a look at the declaration which you can find at nuclearbantreaty.good or you could find it through the MAPW website and sign that petition. Well, all I can say after all that, Sue, is congratulations. Thank you very much, Jan, and uh, it's really congratulations to an awful lot of people uh, around the world. Congratulations to those in the media, such as 3CR, who've done a great job and have kept this issue alive, kept coming back to it, unlike a lot of the mainstream media, especially in Australia, I'm interested in this issue, which has been pretty awful to watch. Thanks to 3CR, and thanks to all the people around the world who've played a part in this, and there are an awful, awful lot of us. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Jan. Dr Sue Wareham, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Nominations are sought for the Darabin Community Awards for individuals and groups who have made an outstanding contribution to the Darabin community over the past year. We are delighted to announce two new categories, Cold Elder Community Leader of the Year and Cold Emerging Leader. Nominations close 11th of February 2021. For more information, contact the City of Darabin on 8470 That's 8470 The City of Darabin is a 3CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Continuing the focus on the coming into force of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons on the 22nd of January making nuclear weapons illegal within international law. Dave Sweeney is the Australian Conservation Foundation nuclear campaigner, a writer, a spokesperson on all topics relating to the nuclear industry and a familiar face and voice on 3CR for many years. Dave, the event of January the 22nd is the culmination of decades of efforts by people worldwide. You've been right up there with that. ICANN was launched in 2007, received the Nobel Peace Prize 10 years later, now 2021 the ban, an achievement by IPAN which is unprecedented. But the work goes back much further than that and you've been a part of that and I could say that it's probably part of your DNA. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very fair call. It's been a really important body of work for me throughout my life, like it has been for many other people and you know, exiting Australia from the nuclear industry, be that supplying uranium or being irresponsible for radioactive waste or being an enabler for nuclear weapons, it's been a big part of my sort of life's work. And where do you see it going from here? I'm just wondering about all the other bans that have been in place over the years for landmines, biological weapons, chemical weapons and others. How have they gone with bans and how can we see this ban going? Yeah, very interesting question and I think um, if we look... Even with those other bans on, you know, indiscriminate weapons, 
even when countries like, for example, the United States hasn't supported them or is actively opposed them, say like with the Landmines Convention, it's still influenced and shaped and restricted those countries' behaviours. The non-state parties have still reduced the amount of production and deployment of those sort of weapons. And the state parties, those that have signed up, have obviously agreed and made massive steps. So we've seen really profound steps taken and linked to bans and conventions on weapons. So we're very hopeful that that will be the case and a model with the Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty. We're also really aware that having it illegal, nuclear weapons on the 22nd of January for the first time ever are illegal. And that changes the conversation. It changes it from one about security and deployment and geopolitics into one about international norms, communities of interest, shared interests and, and approaches. And it's about, you know, the conduct of a nation. So it changes the way we speak about it and we're very hopeful that that will shrink the political space. It will further delegitimise these absolutely illegitimate weapons and it will change the security conversation, the political conversation, but also it'll stop and alter the money flows. Already we've seen European pension funds change their screens for nuclear weapons and excluding nuclear weapons companies and that's happening grow increasingly in Australia as well. So there's a range of legal options, political options, economic options, and if you like, moral suasion. We hope that this treaty coming into international law this week will facilitate and it will really put the pressure on nuclear weapon states and those like Australia to facilitate and enable them. How can it be monitored, Dave? Yeah, it's a really important question. Verification, monitoring, all those sort of uh, checks and balances to ensure that things are happening. They're absolutely, absolutely pivotal. And we've seen through those earlier treaties, through the Chemical Weapons Treaty and others, that there are really quite robust and sort of understood monitoring regimes now. And that is actually even more so possible because of the, because of the specialised and restricted nature of nuclear. It is possible to track and to have a good understanding of the status of moving towards, you know, nuclear weapon states moving towards um, disarmament and abolition. So there's a lot of thought by people a lot smarter than me in a range of agencies, in a range of governments, academics and others, and also people with some real boots on the ground in different inspectorate regimes around the world who have looked, Jan, long and hard at the question of how do you best ensure that there's good safeguards, good verification, people can be confident. They seem confident that the processes are there to be confident. And I think one of the key things here is that it's important that we recognise that the, the nuclear weapons risk is, like it's as current and prevalent now as it's ever been. The doomsday clock that measures and records humanity's proximity to existence uh, and came as a response to the Manhattan Project and the nuclear bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That clock is now at 100 seconds to midnight. It's as close as it's ever been, as close as it's been in the coldest of the Cold War. And that is the twin threat of unchecked climate change and nuclear weapons. And so this is a real and pressing threat. As the world sort of geopolitics changes, nuclear weapons 
are less of a big picture in any way security justifiable or security deployable instrument. They're a, a relic weapon that has no military utility and yet a profound impact and adverse daily cost on people in the diversion of money and the impact of testing and everything else, but also it threatens the existence of the planet. So it's time for them to go. Like I said, this treaty is really our best way globally and collectively to get rid of our worst weapons. What about the impact of decommission? Yeah, we've seen already a little bit of a model of that in a program that was megatons to megawatts where there was uh, Soviet decommissioning of weapons and then what happened there was that the highly enriched uranium and the other sort of like active parts that provide that nuclear bang were down blended because they're much higher concentration in a weapon than in a reactor and they were down blended and turned into reactor fuel. Now that is one approach, that's not an approach that we would be super advocating, there's other ways material can be taken out and stored or disposed in or like disposed in the sense of stored perpetually underground or in other places. We've also had the experience of a lot of inspectorates through nuclear weapons for uh, chemical weapons compliance and all sorts of things including like the lessons learned and techniques developed during the pretty embattled Iran nuclear arrangement and a lot of those systems are in place and pretty well proven to provide confidence about dismantling weapons, ensuring the verification of that dismantling and then ensuring either that material is repurposed or neutralised or isolated as best as possible. The thing with this, Jan, obviously is that you've got high level nuclear material, very high level, very highly concentrated and very long lived. So it's imperative that it be taken out of an explosive and weapons base, but it's still a significant radiological hazard for uh, many, many thousands of years once you've done that. So nothing quick, easy, cheap, no fast silver bullets, but we want to uh, you know, stop the silver bullets and particularly stop the silver missiles because this material now poses an existential threat. It will still be a threat when it's out of a nuclear warhead, but it'll be a much lower order one. And stopping this material being dug out of the ground. Well, that makes the ultimate sense. You know, what ultimately what we need to do is realise that the nuclear industry and for that that civil power and highly uncivil military nuclear, that industry is one of them is now absolutely illegal as well as illogical, <laughs> improper and madness. The other is increasingly expensive, unpopular, underperforming and being blitzed by the new generation energy sources of renewables. So it's time to really transition out of all aspects of, of that trade. Um, and, you know, look, that is happening in combination of community concern and, and economics. Sheer economics is driving massive transformation in the energy sector. And if, you know, Luddites and neocons and others who are just in, in hock to either the coal or nuclear lobbies got out of the way, there's the technology and the capacity to deal with that speedily. It will happen, but it could and needs to happen quicker. And then in relation to nuclear weapons, well, you know, they are vile. They are quite insane, quite pathological. Uh, a weapon that has scant utility except to say we will obliterate you without 
any discretion, any mitigation whatsoever, and profoundly damaging, uncontrollable last there uh, a weapon who, if there was ever a logic for them, when the world was in two, you know, east-west camps and there was mutually assured destruction and that whole bipolar worldview, then if there was ever a justification, that was the time. That time is gone. Nuclear weapons cannot serve or address any of the security threats that nations legitimately face and legitimately want to respond to. And all they do is further enhance security, directly threaten humanity and absolutely erode the confidence and the collaboration that we need in this shared planet to navigate to have a habitable future. Finally, Dave, the event which is scheduled for Friday has been, I'd say, overshadowed a little bit by what's happening in the United States, but it's going to be a great day, Friday. What are you planning? It will be an absolutely superb day, Friday. Like, amazing. You know, the amount of people in so many places around the world for so long who in so many ways have taken efforts since, you know, we first saw the atom used as a weapon, you know, the amount of people who have taken massive and modest efforts that have brought us to this space where now they're formally illegal and the world is moving actively against them is a fantastic thing to recognise. There's a personal sort of pleasure that this particular initiative at ICANN grew out of Australia, shows very much to me the power of um, people's action. If you if you're consistent and committed and creative and strategic, you know, our efforts can and do change things. They shape things for the good. That's really important. I'm going to be raising a glass, remembering those who assisted on the journey or part of the journey and aren't anymore, like dear Bill Williams, looking forward to plotting out then how do we turn this which is a fantastic initiative, a piece of law that says these weapons are illegal, how do we turn this into an active tool for really ramping the pressure on nuclear weapons companies, states, enablers, excuses, and really putting the pressure on Australia to say, come on, stand up, do the right thing, get on board with the right side of history. So a dram, a toast, a think of the past and a plan for the future will be my Friday, Jan. Enjoy yourself, Dave. Good on you. Thanks very much. Good to talk. A familiar voice on 3CR and the media in general, Dave Sweeney. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. Dr. Margie Beavis is a past president of MAPW, a co-chair of ICANN. In addition to her work in private practice, Research, writing and teaching, interests which include nuclear weapons, nuclear war and the weapons industry. And we spoke with the weekend. Mark, your involvement is a long one in the peace and anti-war area, but I believe that the highlight for you was back in mid-2017, a trip to the UN headquarters in New York. Yes, well I'd never done anything like it. Going to the United Nations was really exciting. It was incredibly impressive to see all these countries represented in the room sitting together and sort of almost magical to have the really highly skilled instance translation. Um, you'd just plug yourself into an earplug. Every, every seat had an earphone and you'd plug yourself in and, and you could hear the debate in your own language. They had six different languages to choose from. 
it was amazing to watch the back and forth of the different diplomats talking to each other and the points of view and how they sorted out the wording. The length of time that it took to, to do this treaty was actually incredibly efficient and showed a great deal of cooperation between the countries. And in fact, that was possibly one of the benefits of having, I mean, it was never a benefit having them boycott really, but having the Americans and all the other nuclear weapon states boycotting the negotiations meant there wasn't the usual sort of blocking and tactics that often slow these things down. Another highlight was listening to Karina Lester, a First Nations woman from South Australia, talk about her experience as um, a second-generation Timbuksha from the nuclear weapons testing in Australia. And Sue coleman Hasselding also spoke at the United Nations and both were very powerful. There were really good side meetings as well as the sort of main auditorium where all the civil society, all the people like us had the back seat, <laughs> all the diplomats were down the front. But as well as that, there were sort of side meetings where you could go and learn about aspects of the treaty and experts would talk about that and diplomats would come to those meetings and you'd go along as well. Probably one of the bits I enjoyed the most was when you arrive to go to the United Nations, you get given a set of passes on a lanyard so that you look very official. And so we needed to make sure that at the last day of the negotiations, if it was pushed to a vote, that all the countries had all their paperwork in because you had to have registered and put in appropriate paperwork for that particular treaty. So myself and a few other doctors from um, the American Physicians for Social Responsibility did a sort of embassy pub call where we would go. We, I was dressed in my... It was hot summer, but I was dressed in my best suit with my United Nations credentials, so try to look as schmicko as you could. And you'd rock up to these embassies all over New York, we, we, you know, we walk from one to one because it's fairly compact, and say, you know, we need to see your first committee representative. And because you had the United Nations stuff around your neck and because you had a sharp suit on, they'd say, oh, all right. <laughs> and and we either got to see that person or their assistant and talk to them just to make sure the paperwork was in. But it was sort of like really amazing to... I don't know, it was, just, it was a very practical, non-lobbying sort of thing, but it was something concrete you could do to make sure that at the end, when they did come to a vote, that 122 countries did have in all their paperwork, and it was just... But I think the most, the biggest highlight, really, was seeing countries in the actual room just talking to each other. What a wonderful way of resolving differences, and amazing to have the instant translation so you could hear it all. And, of course, no diplomatic representative from Australia. No, it's it's really very sad. America put a lot of pressure on Australia, on Japan, on other allies, all the NATO states, saying that they needed to oppose this treaty. And the reason they wanted it to oppose this treaty was because they said it was going to have an impact on how they could use nuclear weapons. I mean, for all that publicly, the Americans have said this treaty will have no impact. They actually put an enormous amount of effort into trying to stop this going through because they are very concerned that it will reduce their nuclear weapons and will actually be effective. And this treaty, the one that's coming into force on Friday, is not the be-all and end-all. There'll be further treaties and there'll be lots and lots of negotiation. I mean, I think it's going to be another 10 or 20 years of diplomatic work to actually get rid of these weapons. But this, this treaty on Friday is so exciting because it's the next step. It's really reinvigorating nuclear uh, disarmament in a way that hasn't happened for ages. I mean, the non-proliferation treaty has basically stalled. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's a, a committee in Geneva 
a convention in Geneva that hasn't been able to agree on an agenda for over two decades. I mean, if they can't even agree on an agenda, how on earth can they agree on progressing disarmament? So this treaty, this, this nuclear weapons prohibition treaty is, is really exciting because it's going to get things really moving again. There was only one country that voted against, and that was the Netherlands, and apparently they actually went against the votes of their own people because they wanted yes, to be in it. Yes, yes. In fact, the only reason the Netherlands were at the negotiations was because there's a law in the country that says if, if a petition gets up to say you have to participate in these things, you have to send a delegation. And I think it was something like 50,000 people in the Netherlands signed a petition saying we want you to be represented at these negotiations, that you have to be part of it. So they had to send someone along. And so they did. And that's, that's why it came to a vote. And they were, yeah, it was just one. And um, again, a lot of pressure from the US to, to not support this treaty. It was a great shame, but yes, they voted against their own people. You're representing ICANN and MAPW. What's ahead for you? Well, on Friday, if people would like to join us at Fed Square in Melbourne, so the Melbourne Business, the Medical Association Prevention of War, are having a little ceremony to amputate Australia from nuclear weapons, which should be fun. I think Friends of the Earth, after that, at Fed Square, are going around dressed as the Treaty Enforcement Squad, which is a lot of fun, a bit of street theatre, to various superannuation companies to, and banks to say that it's not okay for them to invest in nuclear weapons, in particular the Future Fund, which is, as you, people would know, a government investment fund that is for them to be putting our money into nuclear weapons companies is really a scandal. In the evening, if people want to tune in, they can get all this information from the ICANN website. If you type in ICANN Australia into your browser, you can find out information of this on Friday night, we've got an event between 6 and 7 p.m., which is celebrating the Tom Uren. The Tom Uren Memorial Fund is having an event which ICANN is putting forward, which is basically to celebrate this treaty. Anthony Albanese will be speaking and other guests about why this treaty is important and why Australia needs to sign and ratify it. So that's going to be a Zoom event so everybody around the country can join it. And that should be good. It goes between 6 and 7 on Friday night. And if people want to get information about that, just go to the ICANN Australia website. And to keep pressure on the Labor Party, because they have pledged to ratify, sign and ratify? Absolutely, absolutely. Talk to your Labor Party. Talk to you if, you, if you have friends in the Labor Party or if you ring your local member. In fact, ring your local member, whether they're Labor or Liberal, because Australia does need to sign and ratify this treaty. What's been interesting is we've actually had some movement in Liberal members because we've sent out a booklet about what it's called For the Record, which means it, it looks at the misinformation that's currently this government has put out on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade website about this treaty. So we thought, well, we're going to tackle that head on. So we've put in it's a small brochure. You could probably find that again on the ICANN Australia website. But if you talk to your MP, whether they're Labor or Liberal, and say this is a really important thing, ring them up, leave a message for them. If you're feeling keen, even um, make an appointment to go and talk to them about why Australia needs to sign and ratify this treaty, because Australia has for too long pretended that nuclear weapons make us safer, when in fact that's not true at all. And are the super funds responding positively to your visits? Actually, it's been interesting. Yes, we're getting... I think things move very slowly in the superannuation sector, some funds are doing better than others. Yes, there is movement. They're, they're recognising that nuclear weapons are indeed controversial weapons and 
I mean, until now, they've been left out of controversial weapons definitions by a lot of funds. So people who even in their ethical portfolios could still be investing in nuclear weapons. So uh, there is certainly movement, and we're seeing some that are that are working towards this. It's certainly been really interesting to engage. Some are not, and some are very disappointing, and the Future Fund has refused to meet us altogether. So if you do go and meet your MP, you should also talk to them about how shameful it is that the Future Fund is investing in nuclear weapons. And also to contact your fund and ask them if they have any of those companies in their portfolio. Yes, 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 yes. Contact your own super fund. Say, do they they invest in nuclear weapons companies? And what is their policy on nuclear weapons company investments? Because some of them have some very weasel word policies. So ask them, A, if they have them, but also, B, ask what is their policy and give them a little bit of a shake-up and make them think about it. Just finally, Margie... What was the role of the Japanese Hibachu at the conference that you attended? It's interesting. Having been involved in politics and also medicine, you think that evidence is what really changes people's minds. But that's so wrong. (laughs) Evidence is helpful and important and useful. But the diplomats said that what really made them think about how appalling these weapons are was the testimony from the survivors. I mean, from every day, a number of Japanese most prominently Setsuko Sturlow, who told stories of what happened to them when they were bombed. I think a personal story, just as from Karina Lester and Sue Coleman-Hasseldine, of the impact of these weapons on people's lives suddenly makes people realise just how terrible they are and just what a responsibility we have to get rid of them. The United Nations, it was very clear that the Japanese Kibaksha, who had for years, no decades, been campaigning for this, was really powerful and very important. Congratulations, Margie. You've done a good job there. (laughs) Thank you, Jan. And thank you for all your help with getting the word out. We really appreciate it. And thanks to Dr Margie Beavis for all her work in this area and many others. Join us to commemorate the 179th anniversary of the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tanaminawai and Mōbōhina at the Tanaminawai and Mōbōhina Monument at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne, midday to 1pm on Wednesday the 20th of January, followed by a silent walk to their final resting place at the Queen Victoria Markets. The ceremony will be broadcast live on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital or streaming on 3cr.org Please bring flowers from your garden. Please note we will be following all COVID-19 restrictions which are in place on the 20th of January. I'm speaking now with Brian Terrell, peace and anti-war activist from Iowa in the US about the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It was adopted in 2017 by 122 countries and will take full legal effect on the 22nd of January, end of the week. It is the first international treaty to ban nuclear weapons and requires victim assistance and environmental remediation for people and places harmed by nuclear weapons use and testing. I've spoken with Brian over a number of years about his involvement in the peace and anti-war activities back in the US and in another other countries. 
but not specifically about the long campaign to bring into force a ban on nuclear weapons. So I asked him first about the movement within the U.S. to support the ban. Quite a bit. Uh, I believe it's, it's like, uh, well, Australia is not so terrible a, a violator as, as the United States, but still they haven't signed on to it. And it's the place, often the places that have, where there are strong anti-nuclear movements and people speaking out that have lagged behind on this, which is a sad irony. But uh, I have to say I'm kind of, I've, I've been disappointed in recent years that the number of people protesting and being active or being concerned, that the concern about nuclear weapons so dissipated from back in the 1980s when there were, it would be thousands, even millions of people on the streets calling for an end of nuclear weapons. And I am just old enough to remember as a child doing those insane drills of putting our heads under our desk uh, to protect ourselves from a nuclear explosion. But that, that fear has dissipated to the point where now people look at it kind of like nostalgia. Imagine that. We were once afraid of nuclear weapons. This is, you know, just not something most people, most people think about. I was, well, we've talked before about the, the trial of our friends in Georgia who broke into the Kings Bay nuclear submarine base. And uh, one thing that was very interesting is, is we, we were down there in Georgia around the base and talking to people who are really, because that base would be a target for any nuclear, in any nuclear exchange from other countries uh, with nuclear weapons, uh, mostly Russia would be targeting that area, and uh, even people who worked there would say that they were not aware that there were nuclear weapons there. You know, the people closest to it uh, don't think about it very much. And so it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a real uh, obligation that we have right now to speak out and to warn people just of the, the dire danger and how, you know, that, that many of the experts say that we're closer now to nuclear war than we were at any point, you know, except some of the, 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 the real high points of the of the Cold War, but certainly since the end of the Soviet Union, we were in a higher danger now than, than we've been for many, many years. Would you say that the mainstream media has ignored this issue as well? Oh, definitely. Definitely. This is, it, it just is nothing that, nothing, we're not paying attention to it, and it doesn't fit into the political discourse as people see it. You know, this is not a Republican, uh, Democrat Thing. It's, it, you know, it doesn't come up politically. We, we just continue to vote for politicians you know, who don't even talk about nuclear weapons, but who keep voting to uh, put more money into research and development and preserving nuclear weapons. Uh, back in I think 2015, uh, President Obama announced what he called the stockpile stewardship. The language that he used was just astonishing because he said – Talking about our aging nuclear weapons stockpiles uh, that need to be need to be cared for and need to be uh, need to be renewed, actually use the words life extension of nuclear weapons, even without the COVID. Uh, but now the COVID has really, you know, statistically uh, affected the you know the numbers. Um, for the first time in recent years, the life expectancy of human beings in, of American citizens has been decreasing, and a trillion dollars being spent on the life extension of nuclear weapons and the stewardship at a time when 
usually the word stewardship is used to talk about national parks or the infrastructure or you know the, the coastlands or the deserts where we're natural resources stewardship is so carefully tending resources so that they will be around for future generations and unfortunately that's what uh, there's a bipartisan totally on controversial push toward maintaining these nuclear weapons so that they will be around for future generations if any how do you believe the ban will work especially in the united states because they've made it very clear that they don't agree with it and there's been a, a NATO disinformation campaign along the lines over the last months. Where do you see it going? Well, certainly Donald Trump had actually went back in October when the 50th nation ratified the, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, actually tried to put pressure on the countries that had signed to, that had ratified it to revoke their ratifications. And fortunately, nobody nobody yielded to that. I heard somebody say something hopeful about this a few days ago, that, of course, the United States has been slow to sign on to anything that would limit its military power. But international ban on landmines that the United States also didn't sign on to, and that is not legally in place in the United States. Uh, but in recent years, since since the landmines have been banned, the United States has stopped using them. Uh, the factories in the U.S. that had been making them have stopped. While legally the, the treaty is not in force, the treaty to ban landmines is not in force in the United States. And the U.S. doesn't consider itself bound by it. It's still, I think, just the, the international odium of it, so a, a sense of shame that's very appropriate has come over you know, the use and production and storage of of landmines, and, the, and that has had a real effect. I think the, 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 the question about the legality of nuclear weapons, and this came up in the trial in Georgia of our friends who were charged with, with breaking into that base and the symbolic disarmament action, is where the judge said, um, you know, questioned whether nuclear weapons could be illegal. I could, so that was a dubious uh, idea, and it wasn't relevant anyway. And Mark Colville, one of the one of the uh, defendants who uh, will be going to jail in, in the coming months, he spoke about that, saying the law stops at that fence. It, you know, in a sense, it's true. If you can if you can imagine the destruction of everything being legal, of producing and maintaining the means and being ready to use at a moment's notice, the means to to destroy every living thing on the planet. The notion of law has no meaning at all. If there is a World War III, God forbid, um, there will be no Nuremberg trial afterwards. No one will be held account. So it, it really is just the existence of these nuclear weapons and the suggestion that that this might be legal is, of course, obscene. And it, it, it calls into question not just the formal laws, but every pact, every agreement, every convention that makes it uh, – that anybody should be neighborly or care for another person, all of our religious creeds, everything is made null and void. You know, if this is legal, then nothing should be illegal. If this is, if somebody can say that it's moral to build and maintain nuclear weapons, then the, the issue, the, the words morality have, have no meaning at all anymore.
very important that this be said and said clearly, and that the obvious truth that these weapons are illegal. The, the treaty doesn't make them illegal, but it, it, it's, pro, it's proclaiming something that's true. We will be uh, at bases and factories and universities, Congress offices that are involved in this. Um, I'm, I will be joining. Um, I live about two hours away from Offutt Air Force Base, which was the main strategic nuclear weapons base during the Cold War and is now the headquarters of STRATCOM, Strategic Nuclear Command, and the targeting and other things are going on there for all the nuclear weapons. And uh, on Friday, we'll be there for an hour standing in the snow with with signs saying that you know, nuclear weapons are illegal. We'll have crime scene tape marking it off, you know, as an ongoing criminal enterprise. This is to, to tell the public that this is that, that off at Air Force Base is the scene of, of a crime for, you know, maintaining in the nuclear weapons there and for planning their future use. And when you think of the the amount of money that's been spent, even over the last few years, to manufacture and maintain these weapons, and you look at the health system and the education system and the housing in America and think, if only that money had been spent on these areas rather than these horrific weapons. Yes, it's, it's, it is horrific. One of the ironies, and most American citizens don't realise this when they see the budget, for the United States, that um, the research and development and the main maintenance of nuclear weapons is not under the military. It's the, the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is a part of the Department of Energy. So people look at the budget and they see the military, which is you know close to half the discretionary fund spending of the United States, as you say, over the things that we need, you know, the things we should have stewardship over. That are being neglected, but it's the, it's the but they think that that would include the nuclear weapons, but it doesn't at all. That, that's under the Department of Energy, and we're at a time Department of Energy is spending more money on weapons of mass destruction than it is on what you would think a Department of Energy in the United States at a time when global warming, another existential threat, and also at a time when we're fighting these wars. Uh, horrible wars going on now in in Yemen, Afghanistan, all about maintaining control over the our dwindling uh, supplies of fossil fuel. To be we fighting over that tooth and nail to to the very last drop, when it really needs to be those resources and the the laboratories and the scientists that are now working for the Department of Energy could be working on alternatives that would be be renewable, that would be just, that would be ecologically we, we, we all all that all that stuff is in our means, but we're not we're not even trying because the Department of Energy is more concerned about uh, building weapons that could destroy the environment, destroy the planet rather than on technologies that could help us preserve our environment and preserve the lives of our neighbors. And it seems to me that What's happening in the U.S. is similar to what's happening here in Australia, where you have the two major parties virtually saying, yes, sir, please, sir, can we have some more of these, and not acknowledging that things have to change. Yeah, and it's that the, the changes that we have to make are huge, and they are within our grasp, but we're, but, but we're just uh, 
all the all the resources are being put into digging in our heels rather than than making these changes. And and it's it is an existential threat. Like we are on the verge of the end of the human experiment if we don't take these these issues very very seriously. And when we're calling for these changes, it's we're not utopian dreamers. It's total what what's unrealistic. The unrealistic dream is that we can go on the way we've been going without making these changes. Uh, the the idea that we should take care of one another and take care of our environment and not try to grab everything is is, is really the most realistic way to to, to to see the world. And it's uh, it's absolute folly to think that we can keep going the way we're going. Just before we leave this part of the interview, Brian, how are your friends, the Plowshare members, going? How many of them are already in jail? Carmen and Martha and Patrick just went into jail. Mark Colville is still waiting for his sentencing, which I believe will be in some weeks. And, uh, yeah, Claire is going to prison in February. And they're all very concerned and their families are very concerned about going into the prisons in this time of COVID because the, the prisons have been real hot spots. You know, there's very little concern about about the prisoners and they're, they're not on the priority list to get the, the vaccinations. Yeah, social distancing in prison is not a possible thing. So this, this is a big concern. And Steve Kelly, who's been in prison since, been in jail through this whole time, he's on his way to the Bureau of Prisons is moving him very, very slowly and in stages to uh, Washington State, where he's facing more charges there from protests at another, uh, the, the West Coast Trident base in Washington State. They're all strong. The, what we hear, the messages we hear are messages of hope, um, not optimism, which is a different thing, but, but, but certainly of hope. The second issue is Trump, as his term as president comes to an end. Looking back on the past four years, there's so much that people have to say about this man. Can you analyse him? Can you analyse what he's done to America? Oh, it's been uh, just the, the, the hubris, the narcissism. It's just astonishing that, that so many people, and you know, including uh, many of the churches and church leaders, have been taken in by this guy. It's a He's a flim-flam man, a con man. Can't say enough about how, how horrible this, this has been and the consequences in the lives of so many people. My fear, though, is that we are you know, looking forward to this, to Joe Biden's inauguration and uh, just uh, praying that it happened without violence. We forget how bad normal was, and Joe Biden represents the normal. You know, he brags that he wrote the Patriot Act after 9-11 that brought in all the surveillance and persecution of, of minorities. Uh, likewise, he's very proud of having, uh, I believe it was 1994, the, the omnibus crime bill that's led to mass incarceration, of mostly of uh, young men of color. I'm very disturbed about the issue that just came up with the Donald Trump has announced that in Yemen, the, 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 the Houthi rebel government there of naming it a terrorist organization, which would mean that, that the kind of aid that the people people in Yemen are starving and they are being starved by the policies of the United States and supporting you know support of the policies of the Saudi Arabia and the uh, United Arab Emirates. It's a scene where, where, where 
a generation is dying and it's genocidal. And whatever the politics are, the effect of this is going to be it's, it's, it's the vulnerable people and mainly the children who are getting the brunt of this because we've had other things happen just in the last days. This is supposed to not even kick in until the 19th of this month, until Thursday, with one day left of only hours left of, of the Trump administration. But this designation is going to stick. And is this going to be reviewed along with other things that Trump Trump has done? He made a similar uh, designation about uh, about Cuba being a state supporter of terrorism. That's going to cause so much more, dis, you know, uh, disruption here. It's, it's uh, these have been called diplomatic vandalism. But what the Biden administration coming in is said that these will be each of these things will be carefully examined on their own. The decisions will be made on one criterion and one criterion only. Exclusively, the Biden administration will consider changing the these Trump designations and executive orders on the basis of our national interests only. As long as the United States is going to be acting on the basis, on the very narrow basis of what its national interests are, well, the United States is going to continue to be a threat to world peace. I, I think we need more significant change than we're going to see from the Biden administration by itself. And I think it's going to be the obligation of U.S. citizens who are looking for something better to be to, be, to maintain our skepticism and maintain our the pressure and the, the protests. I really believe that the Trump administration uh, is as bad as it was and as unresponsive as people say. I think agree with all that, but I but I do think things would have been worse without our without the pressure of you know people like us, and we have to keep that up. I don't. I'm I just really am very afraid of of good people, good activists letting our guard down uh, out of relief that, that the terrible years of Trump are over because it's always been bigger than Trump. It's always a mistake, you know, to, to, to focus the blame for huge systematic problems on one person. We will have a lot of work to do. After the 20th, we'll still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the possibility that in the near or not too near future that Kamala Harris could be the president of the United States. Well, I think that's very, very likely. I think, again, her policies towards the very, very little that we hear about when she talks about uh, international affairs, there's nothing very reassuring there. And her political ambitions, her, her political life started with as a as a prosecutor in California. And even though she is uh, someone another person of color, you know, her record of putting young black men in prison as a, as a prosecutor is, uh, she was very, very zealous about uh, being tough on crime, uh, putting people in prison. So, yeah, it's a, you know, compared to what we've had, Mr. Biden and, and Kamala Harris, you know, look very, very attractive. And it's, they're, they're um, reasonable people. They're not megalomaniacs, but the normal the normal progress of what's been going on in the United States is is pretty horrible. Is is you know the scenes last week from the Capitol and these mobs of white privileged, you know many of them very very wealthy people storming the the Capitol is and with murderous intent. It's, it, you know it's it's just horrible. But what happens 
in that building on an everyday basis. You know, just a few days before that, the Democrats and Republicans got together and they passed the largest defense budget, you know, in history. And it was seen as a uh, great thing because they got together and uh, the President uh, Trump promised to uh, veto it because he wanted to get, you know, he wanted to get some of his own strange personal things in there about holding, uh, about so he could keep up, stay on Twitter and stuff. This is, you know, insane stuff. But the Democrats and Republicans together banded together and they were able to pass this defense budget with a veto-proof majority. And they were very much congratulating each other about how well they, they worked. And that's, that's the orderly business of the United States legislature is, you know, pretty destructive too. It, it, you know, it looks neat and very, very orderly and parliamentary procedure is followed to a T, but it ends up with schools being bombed in Yemen. <laughs> it ends up with you know, drone strikes of pine nut farmers in, uh, in Afghanistan. And, you know, we can't be seduced by the, by nice, reasonable politicians uh, as much as we are relieved to have them rather than the insane yammering of Donald Trump. Some commentators from outside the U.S. look at your country and see it as a divided country and possibly a civil war in the future. How do you see it? How do you see the divisions within your country now? Have they always been there? Oh, yes. And I, and I think we're, you know, the times that the United States is united, you know, we were united around the uh, bombing of, of Iraq for a while in the 1960s, united around sending troops to Vietnam. When we're united, it's, it's not all that great either, I'm afraid. And I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned with some of the rhetoric from uh, Joe Biden about how America is back and is going to reclaim its place of uh, moral leadership in the world. It's just another version of make America great again. You know, when was the time that America was great? And when was the time that the United States had moral authority in the world? When we were undermining Chile, when we were supporting, uh, you know, coups in Guatemala, when we killed the first, the only, you know, the first uh, democratically elected prime minister of Iran, where and when did we have this leadership? And, and the idea that the United States is going to be back calling the shots again is, is not reassuring. It's, it's like I said about the, the situation with, with, with Yemen, as if the decisions are going to be made solely upon U.S. national interests, then the U.S. will remain a, a threat to world peace. And I think what we need is, and I say this as someone who loves my country, is the United States has to take a significantly smaller role in the world. We really mess things up trying to run it. You know, we can't do it. We can't run our own country. To have the United States be humbled and not as powerful and a shadow of what it once was, there's some real possibilities for something much, much better out of that. We're not going to be able to maintain, for example, we're, we're, we're trillions of dollars on life extension of nuclear weapons and we're not taking care of our elderly people. You know, we, we need to be end our empire and, and it's going to end some, someday. It can't, no empire lasts. If we take it apart in an orderly way, respectful of, of other people and respectful of, our, of ourselves, it'll be much better for everyone than if, you know, the empire comes down, you know, with 
kicking and screaming. You know, something we have to get over this dream of ourselves. The, you know, the world needs the United States to take a much more humble role. Nobody's run for president on that <laughs> on that uh, proposition. Lucky to talk, if you could, for a couple of minutes about the the role of the U.S. in supporting Israel and the absolute billions of dollars that have been pumped into Israel over the many years and the impact of all that on the Palestinian people. Camilla Harris and Joe Biden have both said that that aid to Israel is uh, not going to be, that they will be supporting aid to Israel. They will not be subject to any kind of political decision being made by the state of Israel. So, you know, and I think that was speaking particularly about the annexation of the of the West Bank and the spreading of more settlements. Per capita, the United States is spending more money on the infrastructure in Israel than it is than it is here in the United States. What it does too is destabilizing. As we're talking about nuclear weapons, Israel has, of course, a nuclear weapons program that it does not officially acknowledge, but unofficially, it's you know, everybody knows it. Not a secret; it's just simply not officially acknowledged as, as existing. The idea that, that Israel has nuclear weapons—well, that's already illegal under on so many other so many other ways. But the the, the the United States attacked, destroyed Iraq on the false presumption that that they were developing nuclear weapons, other weapons of mass destruction, and the Middle East is supposed to be a, a nuclear-free zone. Of, of, weapons of mass destruction free zone and there's now the sanctions against Iran that are just devastating especially now in this time of, of, of the COVID that Donald Trump needing to uh, get rid of the uh, you know whatever he could of the uh, Obama legacy and part of that is the nuclear agreement with Iran that, that the United States unilaterally pulled out of but of course Israel should be inspected too, and Israel should be, needs to be held to those same standards. Uh, we really can't talk so much about the, the fear that Iran gets nuclear weapons, and I certainly am, think that would be a horrible thing. You know, they're very, very aware of the double standard that, that Israel is allowed and encouraged to maintain weapons of mass destruction, that we will starve Iran to make sure that they don't they don't get them, and we will. Uh, bomb Baghdad, kill hundreds of thousands of people, and make millions of refugees. Baseless fears that they might be getting nuclear weapons. The, the hypocrisy is is horrible, and it, it, it's very damaging to the, the peace of the of the region and the, the peace of the world. One of the, one of the places where I said before, it's where, where the United States is united, and where we're not fighting with each other. Issues like this. Uh, so excited about the unity of the American people when we when we do see it. I fear the disunity and the disjunction and the the, the anger. But I'm also uh, when people are uh, the, the times and circumstances in which American Americans of different political stripes can reach across the aisle and shake hands. It's on things like the support of Israel and on the, the keeping of nuclear weapons. Well, finally and briefly, Brian, it sounds as though that you're going to have plenty of work in the near future. Yes, and uh, there are some really great people here in the United States and around the world that, that, you know, we need to be supportive of each other and we need to maintain hope and take care of ourselves and each other. And uh, we have a world to gain, (laughs) a world to lose. There's 
uh, nothing easy coming in these next years, I'm afraid. And many thanks to peace and anti-war activist Brian Terrell. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Throughout the regime of Duterte in the Philippines since 2016, Peter Murphy and others have documented and spoken about the ever-increasing human rights abuses in that country. And as 2021 begins, the situation has deteriorated even further with targeted political killings, massacre, continued police killings of the poor and the threat of mass arrests of leaders and members of the Red Tafferted Organisations. And it's pertinent to remember that the Australian government's aid to the Philippines is one of the third largest aid donor to the Philippines and, in addition, millions of defence force assistance and training of Philippine officers in here in Australia. I asked Peter from the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines about the hope that the UN Human Rights Council at its meeting in October last year would vote to rein in Duterte. Yes, well, the uh, Human Rights Council was proceeding with a line of criticising sharply with a sharp focus on the Philippines and its human rights uh, record through 2019 and into 2020 and a high point happened in in June 2020 when the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, presented a report to the Human Rights Council which was really quite thorough and really hit the the point that there's systematic uh, abuse of human rights happening in the war on drugs and in the repression of Indigenous people and of human rights defenders and uh, called for a number of recommendations for the Council to consider, um, including uh, use of, if nothing improved, in the, the Philippines' conduct, that there be further international mechanisms of accountability. We were hoping that, at the minimum, the Human Rights Council would endorse a further, more thorough, independent international investigation of the situation following up on the June report. But that process had been championed by Iceland in the Council and Iceland went off the Council. And when that happened, no other state, when you think about it, you know, not France, not Germany, not Australia, actually, or Switzerland even, say, stepped forward and took took up the mantle. And so there was a vacuum and the Philippines government saw that, that there was sort of no one doing anything in particular. So it moved its own resolution and, and it worked out with Iceland something because I think the Iceland government was anxious that the Philippines not completely disappear from the agenda of the Human Rights Council. And, and so a very weak resolution was adopted without any votes, just by consensus, uh, largely saying that the Philippines is trying to address these uh, problems and the uh, UN uh, High Commission's office should simply provide technical assistance to enable them to to achieve this. So it was like saying it's actually all okay. And of course it's not okay. And and even while the months passed between June and October, there was a number of really high-profile and horrible assassinations of human rights defenders, of peace consultants, and mass arrests of other uh, activists in organisations like trade unions. As well, this new anti-terrorism law was adopted 
despite the fact that uh, High Commissioner Bachelet's report had warned that it was breaching certain uh, international human rights standards. You know, it was it was a blatant setback, I think, uh, and a bit of a victory for Duterte. But, uh, of course, we responded at the civil society level uh, by saying, well, if the council, Human Rights Council won't step forward and, and respond to the content of Bachelet's report, then the, the civil society globally will take up this challenge and we've organised an international independent investigation of human rights violations in the Philippines and we will try to report that back into the Human Rights Council um, by September this year. So uh, it's, it's actually a mind-bogglingly big job but it seems to be coming together and uh, we're holding our global launch to the media on January 26 and January 28 this year for the different time zones around the world. So we're really targeting North America, Europe and the Asia Pacific with these media events. And I think your program will get a media alert about it. One dynamic, you know, but uh, blatant sort of mockery and, and just, you know, daring anyone to uh, abuse, you know, rebuke him. Duterte held his own human rights conference or summit in Manila during the week of December 10 and in that week they did a number of things and one of them was to have this new anti-terrorism council, an executive body, to declare uh, the New People's Army and the Communist Party of the Philippines as terrorist organisations for the purposes of freezing assets that's for financial sanctions, although those two organisations don't have any bank accounts in the Philippines to freeze, the intention is really to capture all of those other organisations which espouse social justice goals and significant economic and social change and reform in the Philippines to say, well, all of these are really communists, all of these are therefore really terrorists, and we're going to freeze all of their bank accounts. So it's it's a big threat, and there's a lot of apprehension in the um, you know, civil society uh, layers in, in the Philippines right now. And then that was on December 8th. On December 10, which is Human Rights Day, uh, in the early hours of the morning, there were combined raids on the homes of six trade union leaders in Manila and one woman journalist who's... Uh, online media site was critical of the Duterte government. So seven people were rounded up uh, with absurd charges that, you know, they had, you know, firearms and explosives in their rooms. And, you know, the obvious intent is to shut down media critics and to try to shut down the trade union uh, organisation in the capital of, uh, city of the country. You know, there's a lot of protests uh, happened in response to this, as well as legal actions and so on. How far off fascism are we in the Philippines? Oh, I think you can say this is very much the same as, you know, the Gestapo rounding up everybody and taking people out of, at, onto the street and shooting them. Uh, there's one, one last incident I really want to report is uh, that on the 30th of December, so just before the end of the year, um, on the island of uh, Panay, there's an indigenous group of people called Tumunduk. <clears throat> They've been opposing uh, two dams being built on the, the river that uh, flows through their lands. Um, on that day, December 30, there was again a combined operation by police and army, and uh, nine 
of the leaders of that community were taken out you know, in the early hours of the morning, just grabbed out of their beds and shot dead. And another 16 uh, were in a different location uh, arrested, uh, again taken from their beds. Of course, the police and military said there was a, an encounter. <laughs> uh, there's plenty of witnesses to say people were basically asleep when they were killed. You know, this is just it's shocking uh, that it's happening now. It's shocking that it's happening in a country like the Philippines, which is a, allegedly part of the Western democratic world, an ally of the United States and an ally of Australia, and, and that uh, Australia is uh, providing military aid of a significant level to that government. For every every sort of statement coming out of the international community which says that the Duterte government is failing in its uh, duty to defend the rights of its people, Duterte responds with an escalation, uh, a more vicious action and a more blatant uh, confrontation with the international community. And so far, there's, you know, unfortunately not an effective response from the international community. So that's why I think our project, which we're calling it Investigate PH or Investigate Philippines, is uh, is a very important initiative. And we have to remember that Australian mining companies are also still operating in the Philippines. That's correct, yes. We've got one particular case of Oceana Gold, which is a relatively small company in the, in the world of mining companies, but there is a human rights case around its operation in the northeastern side of Luzon, uh, where legal permit for them to operate the mine uh, expired two years ago, and the, the company's trying to just continue mining, and the local community is blockading the mining site to try to stop you know, fuel supplies, etc., getting to the equipment. They've been attacked you know, by the local police. So there's a human rights uh, issue that's going to be one of the ones investigated there. But also at a bigger level, you know, companies like BHP source significant quantities of nickel uh, out of nickel mines in Mindanao. Um, so it's like a subcontracted operation, but they're the buyer. They're really calling the shots. You know, there's very significant problems environmentally and at the human rights level around those mines as well. You know, there's multiple layers at which, you know, Australia is engaged in this situation and we're not, you know, managing it in the, in the right direction. Okay, Peter, well, we'll talk again when you launch the independent investigation. Yes, it'd be great to, to do that and uh, I hope, you know, we can get many more Australian people aware of and the seriousness of the situation and our, our potential to make it uh, a better situation. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, Jen. And Peter Murphy is the Chair of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines.